Good morning, IEC. Um, it's always a real honor and privilege uh, to be here with you. I consider it a pure delight and joy and privilege of which I'm not worthy to get to open God's word with the body here at IEC. Uh, but for the grace of God, we get to hear from God's word, and it's a gift. If, uh, if you've been here with us, we've been in a series called Foundations, where we've been going through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we've done this for a very strategic reason. Uh, earlier, we had a series on disciple-making. And what we saw in that series is we are called, as believers, we are commissioned to make disciples of the nations. That God's strategy for reaching the world was that his people would share the gospel, see people come to know the Lord, and grow them to maturity in Christ where they can do the same. It's a beautiful strategy. It's one that God uses. He's been using for many generations. And we all are the fruit of it. That 12 disciples were faithful to go and carry out the work of the Great Commission. And we're here today because there's been many other faithful saints throughout the generations that have brought us the seed of the gospel that God has planted in our hearts. Well, today we're finishing up our series on Genesis 1 through 11. And the reason we went here, I gave an illustration the first week of this sermon series about a man, a missionary to the Philippines named Trevor McAwen. When he arrived at his mission outpost with the community, they had all said, we've received Christ. They'd had a missionary working there for 20 years and the missionaries were retiring and when he arrived, the chief of that community came to the new missionaries and said, we've determined that we have paid Christ back for what he's done for us. So we will not be given to the church anymore. And at this, he realized, we have a problem. They've misunderstood the gospel they misunderstood that Jesus uh, didn't came for, come for us to pay him back. No, he came to pay a debt we could not pay. And he took this community back to the Old Testament, starting in Genesis chapter 1, to show them what God's been up to. And you see, the first 11 chapters, if we don't understand those, we can't fully, deeply, adequately understand our need for a Savior why he had to come, why God himself came to the rescue when we understand the beginnings we understand, why our world is the way it is, all of human worth, human dignity, why is there fighting, why is there disease, why is there economic struggle, why is there strife, why is there human conflict and disagreement, why is there hatred, why are there languages and nations, we'll see that today. But as way of review, and I hope you don't ever grow weary of review. Review is healthy. We quickly forget things. So review helps us to remember. It's how God puts things in our heart. It's through repetition often. But as way of review, in Genesis chapter 1, we saw that God spoke all things into creation. Everything we see out in our world, the voice of God 
created. When he spoke, all that we see came into existence. And we see that God created with order. Our God is not a God of chaos. No, he's an orderly God. And he created in seven days. And on the sixth day, he creates what he determines is the pinnacle of his creation. Humanity. God creates us in his image. Morally, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. We are made as a reflection of God made in his image. And that's where human worth and dignity and value comes from. That's why we value human life. Because we're all that's made in God's image. Nothing else in all of creation outside of humanity is made in God's image. And we see in Genesis chapter 2, Moses tells a second time that glorious creation story. Tells it from a different perspective. And in that, we see that God gives man... Adam, three things. He gives Adam work to do. Church, never forget this. Work was something that came about before the fall. Our work may be difficult and frustrating at times because of the fall, but we are created to have a work to do while we're here. Secondly, he gave him a will to obey. That Adam was to obey God's will. God emphasizes freedom. God says, Adam, you're free to eat anything in this garden, but one thing I don't want you to do. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will die. And then he gives Adam a third thing. He gives him a woman to love, a companion to be with him. And those are the three gifts that God still gives to to men, work to do, a will to obey, and a woman to love. I know that we see Paul speaks of it the higher calling of the single life, and it truly is. And some of you, that may be your story, what God has called you to. But we see here that God created Adam, he created Eve, and he created this institution called marriage. That was the first institution God created. And our enemy is always wanting to attack marriages. For those married here today, know that the enemy is after your marriage. He wants you to forget the purpose of marriage. He wants you to believe a lie. That marriage is intended to make you happy. Marriage is intended to make your life better. It's all about you. Marriage is about you. But that's not what we see. Marriage is not about me. Marriage is about me dying for another person. I'm called to be like Christ. And to die. And to serve. The key to any great marriage is selfless living. When a person lives selflessly for the good and love of that other person, it's a sanctifying thing. But it's the first thing that God created, and God created male and female. He created glorious. And I tell you, the cultures of our world are always going to want to war against marriage. But it's a gift. A beautiful, glorious gift from God. It's not easy. Most in this room have felt in some way the impact of broken marriage. Maybe very closely. Maybe with your parents. Maybe with your spouse. Maybe with a former spouse. We, we feel the, the pain and the difficulty of this. 
And the enemy always wants to attack there. And remember, marriage was given before the fall. It's a beautiful thing. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see what's called the fall. The most tragic chapter in the Bible is Genesis 3. But it's also one of the most glorious chapters in the Bible. You see, Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit. All of creation is cursed. Why is there disease? Because sin entered the world and disease exists. Why is there fighting and conflict? Because sin entered this world and humanity has been fighting with one another ever since then. Why is there pain? Why is there greed? Why is there hunger? All of these are a result of our broken, fallen world. The fall explains why when we look out here, we see this world not the way it's supposed to be, but the way that it is under the fall. Yet in the midst of a curse, God curses nearly everything after the fall. But God in his glory, in the midst of a curse, says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. I'll, you will crush his head. He'll strike your heel. And he gives a promise in the midst of a curse that someone is coming. A singular male will come and fix this thing. And then he gives a picture of who that man will be. All of this in Genesis 3, right there in the midst of a curse, God gives a picture of what's going to happen. Adam and Eve, they cover their sin with their fig leaves. Just like we try to cover our sin with good works, with religious practices. There's all sorts of ways that you try to make your sin more acceptable. But sin and the sinner will never be acceptable for God unless they approach through death. Because that's what our sin deserves is death. And God kills an animal in the place of Adam and Eve. And he covers them in animal skins. And it's a picture and a lesson to Adam and Eve that there will be a substitute that will save you. You deserve death, but something dies in your place. That's the beautiful message of the Bible. That's the great hope of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 4 and 5, we see the first humans born, and instantly they fight. Instantly there's conflict. Instantly there's murder and there's death. That's what sin leads to. And in Genesis chapter 6, we see again an attack on marriage, and we see that God brings judgment. Now, lest you think God is quick to judge, no, he is patient. He is slow to judgment. God tells Noah, in a hundred years, judgment will come. And Noah spends a hundred years building an ark. And during that hundred years, we're told he preached to return to God. And he got no converts. Know this, brothers and sisters. God calls us to be faithful, to declare the gospel, in all the places he'll allow us and put us. But God doesn't promise us a certain measure of fruitfulness in that. You see, we declare the gospel. We go and boldly declare it. And God's the one who awakens the dead person to life. But our job is to go and declare the gospel. And Noah declares it for 100 years and doesn't see any converts. So if you've ever experienced frustration going, God, 
I'm available. God, I'll tell people about you, but they don't seem interested. Know that there's been many faithful men and women who's done the same thing. But God calls us to continue to be faithful in that endeavor. And I pray as a church that we'll continue to herald that good news. When we see in Noah, we see God provides a way of salvation. There's only one way to be saved. You've got to walk through one door and die to yourself and enter the tomb of death called the ark. And God will save you. That's your only hope. The ark seems foolish. They've never seen rain. It's built in the middle of the desert. Yet scripture says the message of the cross is always foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. Don't expect the message of the cross to make sense to the perishing. Just like Noah's message didn't make sense. Just like that ark didn't make sense. But know this, God always provides a way. But God only provides one way. God doesn't say there's many ways to me. Our world loves that message. That is a friendly, feel-good message. There are many ways to God. You pick which way you want to approach God. That is not what the Bible teaches. There's times in my flesh that I would like to believe that. But you know what? It doesn't matter my opinion or what I want. What matters is what does the Lord say? We are bound to thus says the Lord. And the Lord says, you can only come to me through my son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There's no other way that's sufficient to cover your sin. And we see that God saves Noah and his family. The eight of them get off the boat. And it's a recreation of the garden. He gets off, plants a garden, falls into sin, is naked, is exposed, and we see a recreation of the garden again. And here's what we learn. No matter how many times God would allow us a restart, try it again, try it again, try it again. Humanity will always fall to sin and will always be in need of a Savior. Noah is not the Savior. God used him but he's not the ultimate savior. He's insufficient. And that's where we pick up today. Noah has come off the ark and he has three sons and they're going to be the ones to populate the earth. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 today, but we're going to read chapter 11 verses 1 through 9. So if you would please stand, we're going to read Genesis chapter 11 verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of our Lord. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bootmen for mortar. Then they said, Come. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops, top in the heaven. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. 
And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language. And this is the only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left the building off the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, we're grateful for your word. Your word declares that the grass withers, but the flowers fade. But your word stands forever. And Lord, this is the word that is preached to us here today. And Lord, we realize that unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken here today. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So in that first verse, chapter 11, we get this. The world had one language. They had the same words. Everybody could communicate with one another. What we're going to see today is an understanding of why are there many languages? Why are there many peoples? Why are there different languages? Why did all these things happen? And we see at the beginning of chapter 11 that they have one language and the same words. But if you go back to chapter 10, in verse 5, look at what it says. It says, From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each in his own language, by their clans and nations. Down in chapter 10, verse 20, it says, These are the sons of Ham by clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And again, in verse 31 of chapter 10, it says, These are the sons of Sham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now, when you read chapter 10, you look and you see there are different nations, there's different clans, there's different lands, there's different languages. And if you look at chapter 10, it appears that God's people are being very obedient they're obeying God. God told them, go spread my glory among the world. Go among the nations, be fruitful and multiply. They're to spread out and to become all over the world. Yet when we get to chapter 11, the very first verse, it says the whole earth had one language. Well, here's what's going on. Chapter 10, chronologically, happens before chapter 11. Chapter 11 explains chapter 10. In chapter 10, we see all these different nations. And what we're going to see today is how God will take broken, sinful humanity and will take a situation that involves a great sin and how God can take sin and use it for his global glory. That's how amazing our God is. Our God can take the sinfulness of man and use it for his eternal purposes. And that's what we see today. He's going to cause man to be scattered. Because man was not obedient to scatter. God had to go down 
and make man scatter. Now, in chapter 10, we see that there are 70 nations listed. Sometimes in Scripture, we see numbers have some significance. We see the number 12. There were 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, sends out the 12 disciples to the 12 tribes of Israel. Because Jesus says he came first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So he goes and he declares the gospel, the good news of his arrival, first to the Jew. But then in the very next chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 70. And he sends out these 70 signifying the nations. The 70 nations that we see here in chapter 10. That Jesus sends his disciples because he didn't just come for Israel. He came for the entirety of the world. For all peoples. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for all people. That's why we go and we declare his glory to all the nations. And he sends them out to the 70. Now also in chapter 10, we see the start of something. In verse 8, it mentions a man named Nimrod. And it says, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And he says, like Nimrod, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And it says, the beginnings of his kingdom was Babel. Now, I mention that for a specific reason. There's a man, as they begin to scatter, even before this, before they've all scattered, his name is Nimrod. He's a mighty hunter before the Lord. And that doesn't mean that he's a mighty hunter going, praise the Lord. He's a mighty hunter going, Lord, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. I'm sufficient. And he starts this city called Babel. Now, throughout your Bible, Babel is always pictured as a godless city. Babel is often referred to. Babel in Babylon, it's used 283 times in Scripture. And it's always referring to godless living. To living in a worldly way. Babylon the Great is referred to as the whore of Babylon. That sounds very harsh, but that's what Scripture says. And it's called that because Babylon will always chase after false gods. And it starts right here. With Nimrod, this man who's a mighty hunter before the Lord that lives for his own glory, he starts Babel. And then today, we get the details of that in chapter 11. It says, they all spoke one language, and in verse 2, listen, it says, And as people migrate from the east, they've settled in a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. This place, Shinar, is a fertile valley. Life is easy there. And all the people gather there, and we're going to see this plain called Shinar. We're going to see later in the book of Daniel. Babylon will be there. Daniel will be carried off to Shinar. So this, this city will be a problematic city. And in verse 3, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. The people that go there, they begin a new technology of bricks. We're used to bricks, so it doesn't sound that advanced. But for them, they build with bricks and they build a tower up to the heavens. 
At least they think it's to the heavens. They're very impressed with their own tower. And in verse 4, it gives us four motivations, four aims for building this tower. Listen to them. Let us build ourselves a city. Notice it doesn't say, let us build a city that glorifies God. Let us build a city where people come and worship the Lord. No, let's build a city for our own selves, for our own glory. And then it says, in a tower with its top in the heavens. There's a spiritual ambition they have. We want to reach heaven. This is mankind trying to reach heaven on their own. Maybe we can build a tower high enough that will meet God halfway. We can, we can do it. People still think that way today. Some people look at their sin and say, I've been pretty good. I'm not that bad a person. I don't need Jesus that much. I just need him to cover me a little bit. I'm not in desperate need. No, the reality is we're all in desperate need of a Savior. We're all utterly hopeless. And none of the towers that we build to our own glory will ever be sufficient. So they build a city. First thing is their aim for their own glory. They're going to build a tower to reach the heavens for their own spiritual purposes. And then look at their motivation. Again, verse 4. Let us make a name for ourselves. It's all about them. Now I'll tell you, there's nothing wrong with wanting a name that has a good reputation and glorifies God. We should all hope for a name that brings glory to God, but that's not what they're doing. They want to make a name for their own greatness where everybody talks about how wonderful and how great and how amazing they are. Humanity still struggles with this today. And the fourth thing, lest we be dispersed on the face of the earth, they do not want to be dispersed. They want to stay together. God has told them to go fill the earth, but they want to do their own thing, build a tower for their own glory, build a city for their own glory, and not be dispersed and make a name for themselves. Our purpose in life is not to make a name for ourselves. Our purpose is to make great and make much of the name of Jesus Christ. That's who we make a name for. We make much of him. We point to him. We're faithful to do that, but here they're all about themselves. Now they built this city. We first see the city in Genesis chapter 4. And often people will look and say, well, cities are negative places. You always see them filled with sin and brokenness. And people gather and they're all about themselves and they're all about sin. But then you also see in Scripture that one day a city is coming. Revelation tells us in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A new city's coming. That's our destination. So the city's not a, necessarily a bad thing, but it can be. Like a lot of the things that God gives us, or the things that we have access to. They can be used for God's glory or for evil. Take a modern invention like the internet. It can be used for God's glory. It can also be used for great sin. 
Take one of the greatest gifts that God gives humanity, the gift of sex. When God says it's between a man and a woman married, that's how God defined it. Yet it can be used in other ways, and people have done that throughout time. Praise God, we know His grace forgives us of our sin. But what I want you to see throughout history, there are gifts and things they can be used in mighty ways for God's glory, or they can be used for destruction and sin. And that's how the city is. We live in a great city here. We could go and find places of great sin within this city, places of great immorality. We also have a great opportunity to herald the gospel to the nations that God has brought here to herald the gospel to the people that God has brought here. God has gathered many people, and it's a great opportunity to glorify God here in the city. So don't think a city is necessarily bad or necessarily good. God can use the city. 200 years ago, 2.5% of people on earth lived in the city. Currently, it's well over 50% of people on earth live in a city. The majority of the world lives in a city now. And God uses cities in unique ways. And here we see that they're building a city, but it's not for God's glory, it's for themselves. And in verse 5, when the Lord sees this, it says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. A few things here. They built a city for their own glory. God calls them the children of man. This is referring to their brokenness, their fallenness. This is not a compliment. And he says, God comes down. God sees all things. He knows all things. He knows what they're doing, yet he has to come down to see the city. That's meant to show us the insignificance of it. They built a tower to try to reach the heavens. Yet that tower is so small, it's so insignificant in light of God's glory that God goes, I've got to go down there and see it. It's so small. It doesn't even come close to reaching me. A couple years ago, I went and saw the tallest building on earth in Dubai. It's huge. It's very tall. But it doesn't bring glory to God. It's all about the glory of man, about the greatness of man, about man trying to do something that's significant to make a name for themselves. In fact... Somebody has since built a tower that's taller than the tallest building. And apparently a tower and a building are different. And now, in Dubai, they're building a taller tower that'll be taller than the other tower. There's always going to be somebody going, I'm going to build bigger. I'm going to build higher. It's going to be about my glory, my name, my fame. And yet in God's eyes... They'll never bring the significance. They'll never bring the satisfaction. They'll never be able to satisfy a holy God. And here, this tower, though they have spiritual ambitions of reaching the heaven, they will never reach the heavens. And it says in verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, they are, pe um, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they do and nothing they propose will now be impossible for them. God identifies that sin is advancing rapidly because everybody's gathered together all speaking the same language. So God, in an act of mercy, 
is going to slow the spread of sin and the deep impact of sin, and he's going to scatter everybody. God had told them to scatter. They weren't scattering, so now he's going to do it. In verse 7, it says, come, let us. I want to pause right there. It says, let us see the Trinity right there. In the Old Testament, God is a plural Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. That's his identity. He says, go down and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. Why do we speak different languages? Because God, in his global plan, scattered the people and scattered the languages. Today, there are more than 6,500 languages on earth. Many of those languages still do not have the Bible in their language. The thing we pray that God will continue to bring is the, lang- the, the Bible into people's heart language. But there's many languages all over the earth. And here we see 70 nations. Uh, today, if you were to ask somebody, there are 200 geopolitical nations. But if you define a nation as unique people with unique language, with unique culture and all these things, people would say there's between 11,000 and 15,000 peoples, ethnes, around the world. So we've certainly scattered, and we certainly have the nations. And what God is going to do is he, through his son, is going to bring all these different people, different backgrounds, different nations, different languages, together to worship him. People who would normally not gather together are going to come together to worship God. That's what he's going to do. We see a picture of this on the day of Pentecost. People from all different languages gathered, and they each begin to hear Peter and the people speaking in their own language. God's showing us he's going to bring the languages back together at some point. That's what he's heading us toward. But right now we live where there's many languages, there's many people, and one day they're all going to worship him. In verse 8, it says, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. God disperses them, and they stop building this city. They're sent all over the world. We see how that happens in chapter 10. And in verse 9, it says they called it Babel. And from this point forward, Babel will be synonymous with great sin in Scripture. Great brokenness and rebellion against God in Babel. The Lord disperses them all over the face of the earth. You see, the reality, church, of where we're headed, we're headed to one day when peoples from all over the earth will gather and worship God. Why do we as a church celebrate the nations? We're blessed. We're a uniquely blessed church that God has brought many nations to our city many nations to our church. All those things are a good gift from God because the reality is is one day every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship him. You see, we get an image of what the end times will look like. And this is the reality of where we're headed. I repeat this one often. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Because here's the reality. We are headed to this day. It's more real than many of your hopes and dreams in life. 
is the image that we see in Revelation. It says this, and they sang a new song. People are going to gather before the throne of God and sing a new song. And here's what it's going to be. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal. Jesus is worthy. Why is he worthy? It says it in this song. For you were slain. He died. He didn't deserve death. He died for our sin. And by your blood you ransomed people. His blood ransomed people. That's why he died was to save us, to save people. But look who he died to save from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. He died so that the nations could glorify him. Let me tell you, our enemy, he wants to do everything he can to prevent this. He wants nations hating nations. He wants cultures hating cultures. He wants people, ethnes, languages having hatred and division. He wants to stop this, but he can't. It's the reality of where we're headed. And in verse 10 it says, And you have made them a kingdom. God takes people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language and makes them a people. We call it the church. The church is made up of people from every tribe, tongue, nation. We celebrate that. And until this vision that God has laid out is fulfilled, we have the joyful privilege of declaring God's glory to the nations, to other peoples. And until this happens, we have the opportunity to worship with people of other nations, to celebrate other nations. The two most mentioned cities in Scripture, number one is Jerusalem, a city built to glorify God. The second is Babylon, a city built to the glory of man, to the sinfulness of man. Church, one day a new Jerusalem is coming. I pray we live for the day that Christ returns. I pray we live for the day when all nations gather to worship him. We're in a season called Advent, as was mentioned earlier in this service. We sing songs at Advent like joy to the world because he came to die for the world. In church, today we get to celebrate communion. And communion is a reminder that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the reality that you have not left us clueless. Lord, there are many who try to figure out how things came to be, why things are the way they are, what's going on. But Lord, you've answered those things. Oh, there's things that we're still discovering about the world and the creation you've made, Lord, but you've given us all the answers that we truly need to live in your word. So we thank you for these first 11 chapters of Genesis that reveal to us your intent. You desired that we worship you and walk closely, yet it reveals to us our brokenness and our sinfulness. 
And it reveals to us the fact that you yourself, you're the one who took the initiative to cover Adam and Eve. And Lord, as we look out amongst people, we see conflict. We see nations rage against nations. We see peoples rage against peoples. And it reminds us that we long for the day when Jesus Christ will return. We long for the day when there will be a new Jerusalem that will come down from heaven. That there will be a new city. Not a city built like Babel to glorify fallen man, but a city built to glorify the Lamb who was slain. So Lord, now as we come to take communion, may we truly know that we can commune with the living God through Christ, our glorious Savior. So Lord, now we pray that we would taste the joy of our salvation in the name of Jesus. Amen.